with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, we are speaking with Eric Greminger. He is the CEO of ERP Health, and they are also one of our sponsors for this episode. So let's hear from them first. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So I'm very excited to have Eric on. Eric is an extremely passionate individual about improving clinical care and providing patient outcomes, tracking. He travels all over the country constantly, does a lot of very high-level work, both with government as well as with payers and providers across the country. And we've had the opportunity to collaborate on a couple occasions and I've just always been extremely impressed by his passion for the space and what he's trying to do. And as I'll share with you in the interview, he actually originally started doing uh, patient outcomes tracking by hand on paper, (laughs) which I think partly shows some of the dedication that he has, because obviously that's a very onerous process to compile that and record that just to ensure um, as much as possible that we're tracking our patient outcomes and showing actual improvement in the care that we're delivering. Something that we all want to do, but sometimes the logistical barriers is too much. And so he created ERP software uh, with his partner in order to simplify this process and make it available to as many providers as possible. So very grateful for having him being willing to come on the show today. With that, let's jump in. Hey, Eric, really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Glad to have you. Can you just Tell us a little bit about yourself and ERP Health. Sure. And firstly, thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show and uh, excited for the opportunity to speak with you. My name is Eric Greminger. I am the CEO and co-founder of ERP Health. We are an enterprise-grade outcome tracking platform. Uh, We leverage the power of technology to personalize patient care, promote health equity, and position providers for value-based care. So the value-based care piece we'll definitely get into later on. Uh, but first, I just want to take a maybe a 30,000-foot view. And you know, we talk a lot about clinical outcomes on this podcast. And when we actually look at the research on the field of addiction and behavioral health, despite you know, this explosion that we've had in the number of providers and billions of dollars more invested, we don't seem to really be moving the needle so much on actual outcomes or, or positive results, right? The rates of addiction, the rates of depression, anxiety are roughly the same as they were, you know, two decades ago. So how do you think that outcomes tracking can help address this issue and improve care? Right, well, and, and those things you just mentioned, along with um, the ACA, you know, we, we really, we're talking about access, right? Where there's more beds, there's more investment, but there hasn't been a commensurate improvement in outcomes. And I think just 
lately, we kind of realized that access without personalized care is ineffective. So, you know, what we're kind of learning now is that we have to, yes, of course, you know, expand access and have more providers and invest more money. But at the same time, we have to make sure that the care that's being offered is personalized care, culturally appropriate care, and quality care. And the central driver behind all of those things is outcome tracking, because that's how you could determine whether or not you're offering those. So you have a clinical background. What inspired you to start ERP? Do you kind of want to walk through a little bit of the background there and how this all came about? Sure. So, you know, it was essentially... Uh, a dissatisfaction with the status quo, you know, from what I was seeing, I, I believe that kind of a, a more personalized approach would move the needle of care forward. So I started doing this in 2014, you know, feedback informed treatment, and I would do it in pen and paper format where we would engage the patients with pen and paper, PHQ-9, DAD-7, things of this nature. Um, you know, the, the clinical team would collect all of the assessments, each day, they would fax them to me. So we're going back a bit now. Um, I would, you know, get the faxes. I would research the findings and then put together a statistical analysis by hand of where the community needed the most help, graph it out, and send the results back to the clinicians to integrate that information into care to ensure progress. Now that three-phase system, engage, research, progress. That's actually what ERP stands for. That's the acronym for ERP, and that's where it came from. Um, and then we really just see, you know, started seeing um, better clinical work. And, and not only that, but the clinicians felt more competent. They had their finger on the pulse of their caseloads. So it progressed. Um, I'm, I'm headquartered in Philadelphia, so I was licensing, licensing the program to a, a multitude of centers here in the area. And... Um, yeah, it was very successful. Met my partner in uh, 2017. He, his background is more the business side of behavioral health. So he was seeing it from a perspective of, wow, this could actually you know, increase census because of something novel where people want to go and get quality care. But uh, he's also a programmer and he saw my passion for helping people. And he came to me one day and he's like, look, if you're doing this by hand, maybe you could help hundreds of people. If we turn this to a technology, we could help millions of people. And we partnered, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. That is impressive. I did not know that history. I mean, doing it all by hand, you wonder why no one wanted to do outcomes tracking in the past. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It was a daunting task, but uh, but it, was, it started out as a passion project. And what I'm really proud of is that mission, you know, we haven't deviated from that core mission of improving patient care, personalize the process, keep that as your North star and everything else falls in the line. we've scaled tremendously over the past few years, but that core mission has continued to, um, you know, be our gauge and our, our heartbeat. So let's dig into the outcomes tracking a little bit and what's been interesting. I think we've seen this in a, in a number of sectors and actually we just had conversations with the payers on it, right? A couple months ago. There is a difference or there seems to be a difference in demographics, right? Men versus women, age, ethnicity, primary drug of choice, socioeconomic status, you know, all seem to have some kind of influence on the results that clinicians and certain clinical interventions can get. 
What have you seen through your data at ERP in that regard? We've seen exactly that. There, there are significant differences uh, amongst all of those things that you had just named and even region and kind of taking it out. So what we found is the more nuance that these providers are able to get with these specific demographics, the more personalized the curriculum, so they could kind of start to identify which types of interventions, whether it be DBT, CBT, uh, work best with which demographic. And then, of course, that's different, you know, across the country because there are a lot of factors that go into that. So I guess if, if I were to offer um, kind of a, a key takeaway of what our, our data has really seen and found and kind of make a recommendation to providers, it would be start doing this now because we've seen a direct correlation between the amount of time that providers are using the technology and the actual improvement in outcomes. So there seems to be, when they're using this effectively to treat these different demographics, there's a proficiency that's taking place and that's translating to better outcomes across the board, regardless of whether that is age, sexual orientation, um, cultural you know, back, background uh, differences, things like this. So I think that's, that would be my kind of macro recommendation. That doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, when I'm speaking with a lot of clinicians, they're just not familiar with a data-based approach to improvement and incorporating feedback. They often tend to be a little bit more anecdotal and, you know, they'll come up with an example of right. a patient that, you know, did X, Y, or Z after X intervention, and then suddenly they apply that across the board all the time. And that's just not really how it works. And when you build in clinical outcomes and you have that feedback loop, you start to establish baselines and you can finally see, are you actually seeing results from patients from this particular demographic consistently or not? And then that becomes cumulative. Then you can try something else, see if that works, try something else, see if that works. So the more data you have and the more experience you build through those data sets, eventually the better you're going to be. A hundred percent. And essentially what you're doing and technology obviously streamlines that process, but you're creating a nimble care model that can learn over time as your organization evolves. And then of course, as you know, contracting changes occur, your positions to, uh, to handle that. Right. And then you can codify those best practices, right? So if you're seeing something work particularly well with, you know, 40 year old males that doesn't work as well with 40 year old females and you build that into your training systems and processes, then the whole organization learns versus just an individual. Exactly. And then taking that out even another layer, identifying which clinicians work best with these populations, improving engagement, therapeutic alliance, reducing AMAs, there's all these incredible benefits, but it starts with measuring, right? It starts with just tracking. Yeah. I have a interesting question for you. So there's obviously a lot of conversations around clinical efficacy and we often talk about the therapeutic alliance and the research and the data has shown that that seems to be the primary driver versus modality and other interventions. But my question mark is, and I'm just curious on your thoughts on this is because we don't have a lot of outcomes tracking in place, 
we're actually not very well able to identify if certain particular interventions are actually more effective. And so I think that this movement to clinical outcomes tracking, as long as we can implement it at scale, we'll start to find that there are actually clear differentiators on top of just the therapeutic alliance. Absolutely. It definitely will. And that's what we need because making assumptions you know, hasn't proven to be very effective. No. So if we no. can kind of have an objective you know, starting point and then combine that with a line of questioning and subjectivity and then kind of marrying the two, I think that's the most effective you know, approach long term. Yeah, definitely. And in Nashville, you presented some really interesting data specifically around culture and ethnicity. Um, can you just share a little bit of that? Because I, I thought it was uh, really, really interesting. Sure. And that was, um, I was referencing uh, a study. It's, it's an ongoing study. It's still ongoing, but some very compelling data that's come out of it so far. So just a little background. Uh, this is a treatment center out in the Pacific Northwest. They were uh, recently purchased by a group and it's a very forward thinking group. They, they wanted to prioritize health equity because they understand that down the road in the next you know, one to two years, they're going to want to approach taking on some value-based contracting. And they know that, you know, health equity and being able to identify demographic differences is important. So they started off with the question of, are we offering equitable care? It's a very diverse community. This, you know, center had been working with us for two years. So they had a, a large database worth of information and they ran the numbers in Q4 of 2021, and basically they found that they weren't offering equitable care, that, um, you know, members um, of, you know, there were gender differences, members of communities of color were not performing as well as the general population. So basically they took that information and they reworked their programming in a few ways. So they added gender specific groups. So males were outperforming uh, females in this case. So they were doing gender specific groups one a week. They bumped that up to four a week. And they also audited their curriculum to identify whether or not it was culturally appropriate and how can they enhance it to make it more culturally appropriate. They also brought in uh, a trainer to do um, trainings on cultural competencies. And basically with these modifications to the programming, 90 days, they found significant uh, improvements or decreases in depression, anxiety, um, and other comorbidities related to the primary diagnosis of SUD. And they've sustained those results as recently as the six month mark. But like I said, it's ongoing. But I think that's a fantastic example of a provider that's using the information in strategic ways to enhance their overall operations and really get their finger on the pulse of, uh, of what's going on at the center. I love that. That is phenomenal and leads actually directly into my next question. Do you have any, any other examples of providers that have taken specific information they've learned from their outcomes and then implemented in the program or even anything you've seen consistently done across providers that has been beneficial overall? Yeah, there was a complete realignment of caseload shifts uh, with an organization in Florida. So what I mean by that is 
they really wanted to determine, they recognized that this, this engagement, this trust, this therapeutic alliance between patients and clinicians was vital to their length of stay, right? Because good, good clinical work and, and those sorts of things with the therapeutic alliance are directly related to dropout rates. So they took a look at which clinicians were performing best with which specific demographics, ranging from age, uh, sexual orientation, uh, race, and basically reworked the way that they triaged when somebody came in and who went on whose caseload. And that also translated to statistically significant improvements in areas, again, comorbid to the primary diagnosis of SCD. So those are great examples. It really depends on what the vision of the provider is. But across the board, having the data allows you to more strategically manage your day-to-day operations and keeping that focus on clinical. Because if we do that, everything else falls into place. Yeah, 100%. I, I just think that there's so much opportunity for us to start individualizing care. And we've come such a long way as a field. It used to be everything. You see a nail, you use a hammer, and that was for everything. We applied the same exact clinical modalities to every single patient, regardless of presentation, regardless of you know, cultural background. And it's becoming very clear as we start doing more and more of this tracking and that different things work for different people. And a lot of it has to do with their life experience and where they're coming from. Uh, and so if we don't adapt to that, then we're not going to be successful you know, with our treatment as much as we would like anyway. That's exactly right. So tell us a little bit about the software actually. I mean, how does it work if I'm a provider or if I'm a therapist implementing this? You know, what am I seeing? How do I use it? Can you just kind of give us a little bit of the nitty gritty on it? Sure. And so we, the way that we view ourselves is as a technological infrastructure that enables the integration of physical and behavioral health and connects people to quality and culturally appropriate care. So I'm, I'm saying all that, I'm kind of going to take a step back and show how we're working across the board. So we're working with a primary care physician now and somebody comes in for a primary care visit Right now, slap a blood pressure cuff on them, take their weight, and they kind of sit there and wait for the, uh, the doctor to get there. We now have tablets working with these primary care physicians where we can collect mental health vital signs, and we use tools like the audit and the desk then to identify risky and problematic drinking in those settings. Um, and then through an expert model, so if something is noticed from the primary care physician that might be you know, too much for them to, to do an intervention there on the spot. They, from that screening, can do a brief intervention and a referral to treatment to a treatment center. So starting there, when they go to the treatment center, the information collected can be, be shared with the treatment center. So now we're in the addiction treatment space, and we have this baseline information related to trauma, anxiety, depression, all of these other metrics using psychometrically validated scales. So from that baseline, week over week, as they're going throughout treatment, we're using this measurement-based care process that kind of we we talked about earlier, where the clinicians are getting, um, through the software, frequent and timely feedback of 
what the patient is going through. So we have two ways that we work with treatment centers to collect the data. So we have tablets that we deploy. They work really great in detox residential. We also have a text message feature. So for outpatient, we see really good engagement where we could go right to their smartphone. They could take the assessment. And then all of the information when they come to their next individual session is on the clinician's dashboard so that they could ask you know, questions and, and use their tools efficiently as clinicians. So ask an open-ended question, identify what's under the surface of what they're seeing. So that's kind of throughout treatment, week over week, we're doing that. And then post-treatment, so we really wanted to have a 12-month model because the data as it relates to success rates on a 12-month model is incredibly, you know, uh, better than not, let's say that. So post-treatment, we now, and this is launching just this week, uh, have an alumni app that goes with the patient, engages on a daily basis, but sends a health screen once a month where we look for risk factors related to have you stopped taking your medication, um, things that could be precursors to a return to use. And then all of that information is shared back to the um, primary contact at the center. So if, you, if we just take a step back and look at that, we have from primary care all the way through treatment into the management of the condition via this app. And this same tool, this is probably the most relevant part and exciting part, the individual has been engaging with from day one. So whatever their starting point is, we're not just saying, hey, here's an alumni and it's coming out of left field and they have to learn to use it. This has been part of their treatment from the very beginning. So there's a consistent thread that could go with them throughout the duration of their care process. And that's why I like the term infrastructure better than, let's say, assessment tool. So did that make sense? I just threw a lot out there. Yeah, it makes sense. Logistically, how is that playing out, though? So it sounds like I mean, if you have kind of pre-entering of treatment, then treatment, and then post-treatment, sounds like the, the data and the application is living with the patient. Would that be accurate? Or how, what happens if a patient gets referred from a PCP to a treatment provider not using ERP Health? Like, how would that work out? Right. So that would be more of a manual process. Now, we're working on provider networks you know, that work together. So that's kind of an evolution of the platform that we're working towards where if there's a referral network, then we could just transfer the data. That's our hope with that. Okay. So, but in treatment into the alumni app, it's, you know, enhancing a sense of agency so that the patient's engaging with it, but then the clinician's seeing the information and using it in useful ways. Sure. Okay. And then continuing on that trend, one of the challenges that I think a lot of outcomes tracking providers have seen or providers trying to put outcomes tracking in place is sometimes clinical adoption. It's because it's so new, they're not trained on it, they're not familiar with it. Have you seen the same challenges with uh, adoption from the actual team providing the care and any suggestions that you have for um, smoothing that implementation process? Yeah, uh, so nobody likes change except what they Right. Um, I think a, a lot of the uh, 
the success as it relates to adoption comes down to the education process. Like, how are we orienting uh, the, the team to this new software? And um, I, I always recommend, let's start with why. So why are clinicians doing the job that they're doing? Because they want to help people, right? Every, people got into this business to make a positive difference. And right now, their only experience with uh, technologies has been kind of a, an administrative burden to them. So I think being able to explain that technologies like ours actually help to make the process more efficient. So kind of going back to, um, to how I tried to explain that, that, time, that patient journey we're collecting information outside of the clinical setting that could be referenced and built upon during the, the clinical setting. So it's actually creating more, more efficiencies. And there's a, an awesome paper that I just read talking about the quadruple aim and provider burnout and how we need to consider the provider perspective. And basically what the finding was, what reduced burnout the most was when the clinician can see that what they were doing was working. And that is actually, you know, one thing that our tool could show where you could see, wow, this, uh, this DBT intervention that I offered actually reduced depression by 35% or cravings by X percent. So that actually is very uh, positive for clinicians, but we have to get over the initial pump of, oh boy, this is going to be something new. This is going to create more work for me. So another, if I, if I could just talk about an example of how our technology is making the clinical care better is I was at a conference this past uh, weekend. It was a negligent and delinquent conference, leadership conference out in Pittsburgh and one of the providers using our platform, there's a clinical supervisor, Dr. Weaver, actually showed how they were using the outcomes that were being collected to create better supervision. And his quote was, taking the opinion as the equation and using the objective clinical data to guide the conversation. So if you're thinking about kind of growth and evolution as a clinician, well, you think of supervision. And the fact that they're using this to make their clinicians more impactful, I think would benefit, you know, that would be compelling to me if that's the way that it was explained to me, the, the possibilities of this. Yeah, I think there's always this tension between, obviously just kind of paperwork and admin work, you know, is, is a lot of overload for people, but there's also a lot of concern because they haven't had accountability around results that can be scary for people at first. But the positive side of that is that, yeah, you actually use it to get better and make your patients better, which is all of our goal. So I, th I think that allows people to overcome it. But something else that I've seen that's actually interesting you know makes sense but i didn't think about it you know starting out 
was that sometimes you'll see a negative reaction because they'll realize that something they were doing for a long time wasn't overly effective. <laughs> and so there, yeah. there is this kind of feeling of um, concern that maybe they're, you know, haven't been doing as well by their patients as they wanted to. And that's a very understandable reaction, right? But at the end of the day, we're always learning. We're always getting better. Like none of us are perfect. And so just being comfortable with the fact that, hey, well, let's learn from this and become better is, is just how we all want to be processing. It's the same thing we expect from our patients, right? Yeah, I think, that, and the way that you explained it was, was perfect. I mean, that would that, that type of kind of explanation resonated with me just listening to it, and, and I think it would with most clinicians. And I also think it's important from a technology company standpoint you know, a lot of people are coming onto the scene and saying, we're disruptors. You know, we're not disruptors. We are aligners. Right? Like, you know, that, we were always very deliberate about that, where we want to align with workflow and, you know, make you better. We, you know, we're not going to disrupt the entire process. But like you just said, sometimes it's, you know, it's good for personal growth to take a look at. This is the way I've always done it, but it is still effective. And if there are there's some things that I could be doing better, and that's a, just a good, healthy way to live. Exactly, I completely agree. And you know, from a supervision and an auditing component, it allows you to be more objective because sometimes the reason that feedback conversations or training conversations get contentious is because it's just a lot of subjective opinion, and it becomes or comes across as judgmental. You could be doing this better. This I don't think works very well, but there's I thinks in there. There's a judgment about the quality of the care you're delivering. Whereas when you've got a, a spreadsheet in front of you, or if you've got a line graph in front of you and says, look, your patient's outcomes are trending down or your patient's outcomes compared to, you know, the other three groups that are running with other clinicians are not as high. What's going on here and how can we help get these patient outcomes up? And then that conversation becomes about objective data and becomes about improving patient care rather than this back and forth between, well, you think this and I think that. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's meant to guide, not govern. I think sometimes it could, that could freak people out. It's like, look, but you, you want the data to guide those conversations. It doesn't have to be causal and say, because of this, you have to do this now. No, we still want clinical subjectivity brought into it, but a more holistic way with the graphs, with the data, and then a conversation on, you know, how can we improve it? Uh, how can we improve it? I have a question that I don't know if you'll have an answer to, but what about timelines? So the example I'll give is like on the marketing end, sometimes we'll get a call from a client and they'll be like, oh, our, you know, our admission's down from, you know, two days ago. Well, two days of data is just noise, right? It doesn't mean anything. There's no statistical validity in, in that length of time. When you're looking at clinical data, and you know, maybe this could be a fear from clinicians too, is like, look, if my patient scores drop week over week, am I going to get chewed out? Because that also would not be realistic. A, a seven-day window doesn't really say much. Um, do you have any suggestions around what a, a length of time would be for an analysis to be meaningful? Uh, I mean, six to 12 months is kind of ideal to start the conversation. It really depends on which stakeholder you're you're talking with from our experience. If it's just really internal ops and trying to set some standards, I would at least do it quarterly. You know, I think quarterly data will allow you to have good 
conversation around what we could be doing better, whether that be clinical curriculum or kind of, uh, you know, what's going on in the individual session. I wouldn't do less than that. You know, it's obviously you could take a look at it and notice trends and if there are steep trends, you might want to intervene early, but I think as a general rule of thumb, a quarterly data report that's one of the things that we provide. So we provide a comprehensive executive report every three months so that they could sit down as a team and say, this is what we're seeing. You know, let's talk about this. Yeah, that makes sense. And as with anything, as we get more and more data, we'll be able to form baselines, right? And be able to kind of create some structure and some best practices around it. Uh, one of the examples I always give with data is selling homes in Wisconsin, which is originally where I'm from. Nobody sells a house in the winter. So if you take real estate data and house sale data over you know, the six months from October to March when it's winter, it doesn't mean anything. Even though you have six months of data, if you took that as your kind of trend lines or model for house sales, you'd be completely off. You have to look through the spring and the summer, which is when all the house sales occur. So you really need a 12-month data window if you want to manage real estate trends in Wisconsin, for example. Um, so it's really, really important for providers to also understand what is the length of time that's reasonable, what makes sense that we're going to get statistically valid data and not just noise or, or not just trends that really don't show us the, the true kind of overtime progression. Yeah, I agree. The 12-month mark is ideal if you're going to make kind of permanent decisions as it relates to staffing and sort of tracks you might want to offer and say, take a step back, look at it for a year. And then, like I said, the, the data will allow you to kind of make very strategic decisions, but you don't want to make knee-jerk decisions based on very early results when there could be a multitude of variables impacting those results. Yeah, exactly. So moving off ERP specifically a little bit, so obviously it's on behalf of your ERP, but you do a lot of speaking and advocacy work. Uh, can you just kind of tell us about some of your efforts there? Yeah, well, I'm, first of all, I'm a person in long-term recovery myself, so service is very important to me. It's been a guiding principle in my own life. So I try to give back and share um, you know, what I've learned over the years. I do a lot of speaking at high schools, training uh, school counselors. I'm very passionate about uh, adverse childhood experiences and the role that that has down the road for students and, and the youth. So I do a lot of trainings around that. I sit on a board of Prevention Plus, which is an organization in New Jersey that brings evidence-based practices into uh, different schools and community settings to you know, try to talk about and improve the mental health of children, adolescents, and young adults. So, that's a, that's a few things. I also am on a, a board of Fentanyl Awareness Day, staggering overdose death rates in this country, and it's you know it's hard for me to just sit back and and watch. So I donate a lot of my time towards that to uh, hopefully make a positive difference. And then I also saw you did a couple conferences uh, alongside. I think it was uh, BCBS and some of the other payers. But so maybe interest around that, and then also logistics question. When you're looking at ERP health, is this covered somehow under insurance reimbursements now? Is this out of pocket? How does that work out or how do you think it's going to work out in the future? Sure. sure. I'll start with the first question. You know, we, we 
have the privilege to work alongside a lot of payers. They recognize, you know, the work that we're doing. And I think we live at a very interesting time. And your event in Nashville kind of even further made me believe that we're at a time where the payer and the provider are truly interested in sitting at the table. And I think in order to further that initiative, both parties understand that there has to be a level of transparency as it relates to outcomes. And we don't have a horse in the race. That's the beauty of our company. We just provide objective data points that could be um, used strategically to, if you're the payer, benefit your member. If you're the provider, benefit your patient and kind of I think it, it provides a good starting point. So as a result of that, we've been you know, doing conferences and, and talks about how outcome data can, can help with provider, provider networks, specifically on the payer side, and promoting health equity, making sure we're, we're getting the right people, the right care at the right time. So that's been really uh, a really nice byproduct of the work that we're doing in the field. And then taking that, you know, a- answering your your next question of um, reimbursement for ERP Health, right? So how uh, how are you guys? Is that built in currently? Are providers paying out of pocket, or how how is that working? Yeah, so right now it's out of pocket for the providers, very achievable price point, and we take a lot of things into consideration uh, their business model, but. Long term, we think that there's an opportunity. Well, obviously, when we're talking about value-based contracting, that's kind of what our sweet spot is, making sure that providers are uh, strategically positioned for the unavoidable changes that are coming to this industry. I mean, we're past escape velocity when it comes to, you know, value-based care. So we really see the investment in technologies like ours as being a major asset in, in those contracts. But we do think that there is an opportunity for payers to reimburse for this. I think that's going to take a little bit of time and some proof points to show the downstream cost uh, effects. So how much money that we're saving. So we're in early conversations about maybe it wouldn't be like a direct CPT code type reimbursement, but it would be a payer willing to invest more on the front end because they recognize there could be tremendous, you know, to the tune of trillions uh, downstream effects across the board by having outcomes, taking more preventative measures, having built into this infrastructure, this continuous care process and that's why when i when i talk about the patient journey we're leaning into all the way up to primary care you know because we you know we think and not just think we're we've been educated by the payers that this is where we want it to be we want it to be a continuous process that um you know starts best case scenario prevention so we're doing these universal screenings at the primary care setting where they could intervene early, but if they are going to specialty care, do we have some sort of clinical metrics that we could enrich with the claims data 
to identify best practices and standards of care that, again, are, can prevent these very costly readmissions and, um, and other worse things like loss of life. Yeah. So I think there's two follow-up questions from that that's probably important for, for people to understand. So one side is the, the payers are very interested in the data and they'll ask questions around, well, what are you seeing that seems to be effective? But again, they don't want anecdotes, they want hard data. And because most providers don't have hard data, it's very hard to give any kind of answer in that direction. And then this also relates to what providers are trying to do. The payers have certain criteria that they're looking at and they're usually cost-focused, right? ER visits, readmissions. Providers are often looking at things like, well, you know, we've got an addictionologist on staff with a PhD, or we have our patients see, you know, individual, they get individual therapy three times a week. Those are extra costs. And so they'll try to get those costs reimbursed by the payers and the payers will come back and say, well, we have no evidence that a PhD addictionologist or three sessions versus one session a week of individual therapy has any improvement in outcomes. And so we're not going to reimburse it. So outcomes tracking is a way for providers to validate their care models and say, hey, look, this is actually valuable, and so we should be reimbursed for it. But until that happens, you're not able to make that argument. So leading into maybe this value-based care conversation, I think that's what a lot of providers want to be thinking about, is it's not, is it directly reimbursed when I do outcomes tracking? How can I use outcomes tracking to increase reimbursements for the things that we think and then eventually know are effective? Yeah, and that's really... What we talk about when we talk about, you know, investing in a tool like ours is, yeah, value-based care is coming, but it's not here right now. And you're still making an investment and you have a responsibility to kind of, anything you invest in, there should be a return on that investment. So we prepare the, the provider partners that we're working with for, for value-based care, but also position them to do well with their fee-for-service model. And what you just you know explained were more structural or process outcomes. So we have this level of licensure, or but outcomes specifically as it relates to patient improving are, are very important as well. But what what we're able to do, so we have a UR report, for example, where every not just every assessment that's collected, you know, from the patient, every question within every assessment gets populated to an ASAN dimension. So when the utilization review team is calling the utilization management team, they're actually requesting more days based on medical, you know, based on these ASAN dimensions and kind of advocating use, you know, and showcasing medical necessity specifically based on the information that was, you know, collected from these individuals. So we're seeing major increases in length of stay because, again, there's this proficiency with this ASAN language, and there's a level of objectivity saying, this isn't my opinion that we should get more days. This is what the data is telling us, that this level of care is most appropriate for this individual because this is what you know, they're reporting. That's been very interesting as it relates to the payer-provider um, conversation and that starts with outcomes 
So they're enhancing their fee-for-service model, but also getting their finger on the pulse of how well they're doing as an organization. So when they decide to take on risk, they're prepared for that. That makes a lot of sense. You know, the other piece to that is when you're moving in these directions, the payers also sometimes have their hands tied behind their back. Like for example, peer recovery support, they're not able to reimburse for that in every single state. You know, there's different things that they can't reimburse for as, as an insurance payer organization. So by moving towards a bundled rate or moving toward a, towards a full value-based care contract, they're able to account for all these additional things that maybe they want to cover because they know they're effective, but they're unable to based on however the laws work. Um, so when you're looking at the value-based contracting in particular, do you have any success stories you can share or any insights you can provide in terms of how uh, providers can use your kind of data to work with the uh, payers on different contracting models? We So... Yes and no. I, I, we're, we're in early days, and we're actually going to make a pretty exciting announcement in Q1 of 2023 as it directly relates to that. But um, anecdotally, you know, with, without actual the signing of the contract, paper performance stuff, obviously you're able to show a superior clinical outcomes. We've helped to negotiate a few of those contracts. But I agree with you. The long-term goal with what we're, what we would like to do, is again be the technological infrastructure of, you know, where outcomes measured over the course of a 12-month model, because that, you know, again, peer support can plug into this infrastructure down the road. Um, but that is where we're going to see the best health outcomes and the reduction in cost and, you know, these kind of capitated bundled uh, models. So, you know, I, I, I think that's where we want to be. So anecdotally, we've seen some really good results, you know, getting extra money, even negotiating better network rates using the clinical data that we've been, um, that our system has generated at different centers. But I think the most where we need to go and the, the quicker, the better is towards these long-term models where, like you said, sometimes their hands are behind their back and they can't reimburse for peer support, uh, but it's very effective and it's helping a lot of people. So like, let's kind of figure out a way where here's, here's the money and now the provider has the autonomy to kind of piece together a long-term success plan. You know, again, with helping the patient as a top priority, like let's help people. Helping people is really good for business. <laughs> you know, yeah, so 100%. Keeping that at the North Stars where we, where we need to be. I think value-based contracting is going to be crucial and key to achieving that. I do too. I, th I think it's the future. I think it's the right way to move for patients as well as providers. And I think everyone benefits. So switching gears, I saw some kind of announcement, I think it was a press release or something, about a $10 million investment into an innovation hub through ERP. Uh, can you tell us about that? What are you trying to accomplish with it? Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be based in Washington, D.C. Um, basically, what it is, is you know, 
we want it to become a central focus of cutting-edge advances in behavioral health, be a place where respected voices in the field can gather, share best practices, develop new technologies, and most importantly, provide the youth with early access to universal screenings that could facilitate early intervention and prevention. So we, we're aligned with some, uh, some amazing people, very influential people in D.C., and they, you know, we've kind of been talking about this for almost two years now. And they're like, look, we need to make a positive difference, especially when it comes to underserved communities, especially when it comes to children, adolescents, and young adults. And technologies where it's at, but a lot of them can't afford some of these cutting edge technologies, whether it be school systems, whether it be community-based centers. So. The Innovation Hub, with the help of you know a lot of really great people and some very generous donors, uh, will bring to bring together a lot of these startups and, and also mental health tech companies that are trying to get off the ground and you know make a positive difference in helping them to get into more centers, but also the more established um, technologies that might be a little outside of the price range of. Uh, certain schools or, or communities making those tools accessible to uh, to kind of curb some of the mental health issues that are going on. So can you explain that a little bit? Is it like a group buy model or how would how would a school system that normally can't afford it be able to afford it through the innovation hub? So it's a nonprofit so that I should have started off with that. Sorry about that. So the the Innovation Hub is actually a nonprofit that will deploy, help to deploy these technologies and help to fund them into these different systems. Okay, so it's almost an incubator of sorts. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, we've covered yeah, that. And Go again, ahead. twice. Sorry, twenty twenty three. A lot more information is going to come out. Uh, about that. So I just wanted to give a, a high level explanation. Of well, it's only 30 days away. You can spill the beans now if you want, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're having a ribbon cutting and I'll say you're definitely invited. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, all right. So we've covered a, a lot of ground here. Is there anything that we haven't gone over that you'd really like listeners to be aware of? No, I'm just, you know, I, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to, um, to to kind of working alongside of providers, yourself. I think we're, we're in an exciting time when collaboration is the word. So, yeah, just uh, optimistic for the future and excited. Yeah, I love the call it for collaboration. There's so much opportunity. I think the field's really moving in that direction. I think it's taken a little bit, uh, but as we become less fragmented and we still see the strong needs that are out there and the strong opportunities there are to help people, collaboration's the, the word of the day, in my opinion. So if someone wanted to reach out to you or ERP Health, what's the best way to do that? Well, you can go to our website, erphealth.com. Uh, me specifically, you can shoot me an email, ejg at erphealth.com. Well, I really appreciate all the information you shared today. It's super valuable. Uh, for all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time.